We're going to continue this morning in worship through the Word, and so if you brought a Bible, I'd encourage you to snag it and get it out. If you don't have a uh, Bible, you have a device, we have open Wi-Fi if you need that. Cool. And then we are going to continue in our study. We are nearing the end of our study of 1 Corinthians. We have three weeks left, in case you're keeping track, and we will be finished with 1 Corinthians. I hope it's been a blessing to you. Oh, and I want to mention one more thing, by the way. If anyone here is doing Bible 365, we are three-fourths of the way through the year. And I wanted to kind of throw this out there. If you've not been doing Bible 365, which is reading the Bible in a year, if you wanted to jump in with us, next 10 days, starting today, we're going to cover, started today, we're going to cover the book of Proverbs in 10 days. And so if you want to read along for the next 10 days, uh, check out our website, familybc.org slash 365, or talk to me. I'll get you the information. But uh, it's been awesome. Hopefully a few of you are still journeying with me, and it's been a blessing to do that together. So, all right. Uh, This series, we've been talking about what it means to be the church, how we can be the church of Jesus Christ, and how that looks in our lives. And I'm thinking here, we just turned into October, which is crazy. Is this true? Not yet. One more day, two more, three more days. It's the first. It's Tuesday. It's Tuesday. Yeah. Yes. I got it right, Chris. So proud of myself. Um, it's coming up this month, and one of the things that comes up in October is what? Okay, Gene's birthday. <laughs> Halloween, yeah. Halloween's coming up in October. It's the, it's the holiday of October, right? And kind of some would say you know, Thanksgiving is coming, but ha- Halloween's a big... People started... I was driving down the road the other day. People had their house decorated for Halloween. I mean, people are serious. You'll start seeing more and more. And I don't know if you've seen those yards that are like, uh, that are like you know, headstones and low smoke and, you know, cobwebs and all that. By the way, spiders have been terrible at my house. That's kind of crazy. So they just do their own thing. They're on their own calendar with this Halloween thing. I guess that's why they're part of it. But have you seen that? And I, I wonder, like, are, are, when you walk around, I mean, if you really see that, like, are you comfortable with this concept? Graveyards in every front yard. Some of you are shaking your head, no, nope, don't like it. Don't like it. How about this? Um, how many of you are, are comfortable just in graveyards in general? Just walking around a graveyard. I was thinking about this coming in, you know, one of the experiences I get, I don't, by the grace of God, I haven't done a lot of funerals, but I've done enough funerals, and I used to be really uncertain about how, you know, because if you don't go to a graveyard a lot, you're like, well, where do I stand? How, where can I walk? Where are the acceptable paths? I think I mentioned to you all that we had the pleasure of traveling to um, Ireland, and there, the whole country is graveyards, it felt like, and, and you couldn't get through. There's no clear path. There's no nice road. You just walk over past headstones. Some of them are knocked over, and you can't read the names anymore, like, it, it, it's just amazing how long uh, people have been um, burying one another with hope, especially Christian hope, right? And so I, I, I've kind of thought about that, and I've gotten less timid about it now because, you know, you, you begin trying to desecrate anyone's grave, that's for sure. But you just know it's holy ground. Like when you're in a graveyard, it's holy ground. But maybe not all of you think that is true. Um, we actually got the note this morning from uh, um, Jess Hankins about Max Hankins and his passing, and, and it's a, it was a great honor to be able to officiate that funeral. But I thought, and actually I want to mention as we get into the text today, I, this is the text I shared at Max's funeral. I felt so compelled and led by God to talk about this text. And I thought it was funny because it was in 1 Corinthians. I'm like, I'm going to be preaching in a few weeks, but I had, I had to share it at Max's funeral because I think it's, it's the, the cusp of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're going to talk about that today why Max's funeral, we have hope at Max's funeral, and why graveyards ought not to freak us out that much. As a matter of fact, maybe even Halloween, we can see a different way that everyone, what they're celebrating, and we can see a different angle on it that is uh, gospel-oriented. 
All right, cool. We're going to pray, and then we're going to open our Bibles today. Uh, pray with me, if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come into your word and to experience your teaching. I pray, Lord, that we would all have eyes to see and ears to hear the things you'd have us to know. I pray, Lord, it would not be man-made wisdom, no, nothing great I thought of, but your Holy Spirit teaching your people the truth about who you are and, and, and the gospel that you've brought to us. We thank you so much for the faithful saints who have gone before us and, and brought this message forward, and I pray that as you lead us, that we are the kind of people to bring the message forward, that we would do the work of, of, of thinking deeply uh, and considering the truth, the realities of life, even as we face death. May you be glorified as we consider resurrection today. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. So 1 Corinthians 15, we're covering verses 1 through 34. Paul's been talking about issues of the church and all these things, and then he's going to address this next issue with the church that he thinks is of utmost importance. Verse 1, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, that you received, and in which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. So Paul lines out, and he's like, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. Remember, he's writing back to the church in Corinth, but these are people that he knew, people that he cared about, that he had invited into the faith life, and that he had proclaimed the gospel for. And he says, but I want you to remember, I want to remind you, remember this tendency to forget, the gospel that I preached to you. Read on with me then in verse 3. Because what I received, I passed on to you as of the highest importance, or the first thing I told you, that Christ died for our sins according to Scriptures, that he was buried and was raised on the third day according to Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. We're going to stop there, but we can read a little more of that in a minute. But, but Paul says, there's this thing that I preached to you, the first thing when I met you that's, that, that's good news, and I want to remind you what that is. And so the first thing we're talking today about resurrection and what resurrection is, and the first thing that resurrection is, the gospel. Resurrection is the gospel. This is why I felt compelled to preach it at Max's funeral, because it can feel so broken in that moment say well who can speak in this moment what what hope can we have and and especially you know sometimes this is not to our credit but sometimes when people have a nice long life people will always say when someone passes away well how old were they i can tell you that the closer i get to the age that people mention the less comfortable i'm with thinking that's old enough <laughs> i don't think it is necessarily i mean it looks younger all the time young people go oh, those are old people yeah you just wait you just wait. It's like the object in the mirror is closer than it appears, right? Like we're getting there. But it's not to say that we fear death. It's to say that it's something to be dealt with honestly and openly. And uh, the Apostle Paul says, this is the gospel that I preach to you. Look at what the word says. I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you, which you received. So he says, not only did I preach it, but you received it, right? And on which you continue to take your stand. You say, I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's important that you and I understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ is inextricably bound to his resurrection. It's not an afterthought. It's not something you can choose to believe or not believe about Jesus. It is the gospel. Paul's going to break down here in 15, in the first part of 15, why that is. Why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ so bound into the very gospel that's been proclaimed for the forgiveness of sins? Look at verse 2. By this gospel, this good news, you are saved if 
Here's, we're going to have some ifs today, con- contingent clauses, right? If you hold firmly to the word that was evangelized to you. So Paul's saying, I came and evangelized. The word there says preach, but it's not, uh, it's not that kind of proclamation. It's an evangelistic gospel. And so he's like, I evangelized you. You received it. And now you stand in that evangelism, that good news. I want to remind us this morning that the gospel is good news. Like through and through, good news. The gospel is good news whenever your life is a mess and you can't get it sorted. The gospel is good news when everything seems to be going great and you're not, you know, like, this is awesome. You're not thinking about it. The gospel is good news whenever you're facing illness. The gospel is good news when you're facing death. The gospel is always good news. A friend of mine told me uh, this week, he said, yeah, I love to talk to people about Jesus, but the problem is that many times people think that, that the gospel, that the, that the news about Jesus is going to take something from their life. He said that they, they think the reason that they won't be open to Jesus is because they believe it's going to cost them something in their lifestyle that they treasure too much. So they won't hear the God. I hear what he's saying. I, I'm not saying that's not correct thinking. But the reality is this, that we gain more in the gospel of Jesus Christ than we could ever leave behind. Like, there is more to be gained in the gospel than lost because you follow Jesus. And it's just a wrong thinking to think, I'm going to leave all these good things behind that I enjoy for something unknown, which is called the gospel. But the reality is that the gospel deals with, I would say, two major issues that we all face in this life. And, and, and again, it's the only way that we can see they can be dealt with in a, in a real way. Um, so the, that's the gospel. Um, it's good news for the church. This is the gospel, Paul says, by which you are saved. And, and for this reason, then, we know that the gospel itself is salvific in nature. It is, is saving us. There's this idea here that by which you have been saved, in which you are saved, and which you will be saved is the same good news. But then here's the clause. If you hold firmly to the word evangelized to you. So this gospel he's going to present says, you can't say, okay, I'm over that. That's the amateur hour stuff. Now I'm on to the real gospel, and I get to... No, it's always the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is it then? I'm going to break this out here this morning. For what I received, I passed on to all of you as the highest priority, that Christ died for our sins. This is the first thing that the gospel does for us, is it forgives our sins. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. This is why it is good news. You want to say, how can you love someone when they make a terrible life choice because God died for their sins. Um, how can you love yourself? Maybe you have a hard time with that because you've made bad decisions in your life that you regret because the gospel forgives sins. I don't know if you know what the word sin means in the Bible, but it simply means missing the mark. It means you hit the wrong target. You weren't aiming right you, you, and you weren't even close. It doesn't mean like, you know, it can mean you're like, oh, you're almost got a bullseye, but it can mean it's anything less than perfection, right? But it can also mean if you shoot archery like I shoot archery, it's like the target's over here and you go, funk, and your arrow goes over there, right? Not even close, you know? You, you, you injure the person standing next to you in the range. Like that kind of misfiring is what the gospel is for. It's not for people who are like, well, we're almost there. We just need a little push over perfection. No, the gospel forgives our sin. This is why we can have gospel hope at all times in this life. This is why we ought to always be proclaiming good news to people 
but you don't know my story. You don't know what I've been through. doesn't matter. The gospel forgives your sins. Jesus died to forgive our sins according to Scripture. That's what Paul says. The first thing I told you is that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. It's a great gift to us. Many, uh, I think I've told you before, many of my friends, um, when I came to faith in Jesus Christ, they're like, yeah, but you weren't a bad guy. And I'm like, you didn't live in here. It's terrible in here. And I'm not saying it's perfect in here now, but it's way better. It's way better because I know I've been forgiven my sins. There's things that we struggle with and, and that, 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 that haunt us or harm us or pursue us. We sang a song today. It says the, the enemy whispers lies in our ear. We believe those lies. We self-apply them. But this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it says that's a lie. You're loved. You're known by God. There's no unforgivable sin. Believe the good news. Repent and, and be changed. So the, 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 the resurrection, resurrection itself is the gospel. How so? If you stop right there, and I'll confess this, this is where many of us stop talking about the gospel. We go, well, that's the gospel. Your sins are forgiven, and that's it, right? And if that's where you stop, well, then, yeah, resurrection? No, you're okay with or with, without resurrection because your sins are forgiven. Just your sins are forgiven. You don't have to worry about it. But what does Paul say next then? What I passed on, I, uh, first importance, that Christ died for your sins according to Scripture, or for our sins, by the way, notice the inclusion, according to Scripture. And then what? That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to Scripture. This is the gospel. This is part of the gospel. I will confess to you that I've often stopped at that first part. The gospel is that Jesus died for your sins. And I don't tell people, and the good news is that he died and was buried and then was raised again, right? I, don't, I just don't mention that part all the time. I just think more it's like the sin problem is the biggest problem. I told you it corrects two major problems that we have as human beings. The first is that we have screwed up and we need a resolution for our screw-ups. There's kind of two default options. Well, three. One is you can act like, you know, you don't care or don't care. Don't care, right? You could do that. Um, the second option would be that you try to make it better. You work really hard and you try to be perfect. Or, or the third is that you believe God has done something for you to, to, to make you perfect in fact, even though you're not perfect in life. And then you go about, you repent, you don't continue sinning. You don't continue openly sinning, but you continue to walk with God in forgiveness for your sins. You apply that to your life, right? And those are kind of the three options that are available to us with our sin problem. But the second problem that we all face that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ addresses is certain death. I mean, certain death. Again, when you're a young person, you're looking, you're like, it's a long way off. It's, it's closer than you think, young people. I mean, how many of us have had close calls in our young days? I had many. I could have been dead many times over in my life. It's closer than we think. It's a certitude that we face, and it, and it, it, asks, it causes us to ask a question of, um, is this all there is? Is this life all there is? And so we face this death. And so that's the second thing, is that Christ was uh, buried and then raised on the third day. By the way, I want to mention, according to Scripture, but I want to say something. I had never really thought about this before. And this is dumb to say out loud, but whatever. I'll do it. I never thought about Jesus' funeral. As many funerals as I've officiated over and been to and stuff, you know, like, and again, it's not been a ton, ton, but it's been enough. Uh, Jesus had a funeral. 
Like, that's what the whole story is about them getting spices and wrapping his body and taking it off the tree. We tell that story like, oh, they were like, hurry up, the Sabbath is coming, let's get him off the tree. We don't have him hung on the, on the cross overnight and all that, and, and you know, it, it would be a um, disgrace. And so, yes, take the body down, put it in the tomb. Roll the, we told the whole Easter story about the tomb and all that, but the reality is that that's Jesus' funeral. When the women show up the next morning, they're there to continue the funeral of Jesus. Listen to me. When you're at a funeral and we're, we're there, the funeral is a participation in something that Jesus himself already participated in. I never thought about that before. He literally went through a funeral. He was dead. The word necros, there's no other way around it. Necros means one thing in the Bible, dead. It doesn't mean you're kind of, you know, having a bad day. It means you're gone. You're not there. When there, you think about when Joseph of Arimathea took the body down and put it in his tomb, he was carrying the dead body of God. There was, he wasn't there. He was dead. And it's important that we understand that that's deeply connected to the gospel. That not only the forgiveness of our sins on the cross, but then this death of Jesus. As a matter of fact, you remember that the apostles themselves were distraught over his death because it meant he was not who they thought he was. We thought he was the Messiah. Didn't Peter say that? We thought he was the one and he's dead. This can't be. Anytime you're at a funeral or you're walking around, if you're driving past the graveyard, we ought to be reminded that Jesus went through a funeral as well. He was dead. He was buried for three days. By the way, isn't it strange? One of the things I noticed whenever I was traveling is that they used to put cemeteries in the front of the church. Did you ever think about that? I mean, I know I'm getting old, but you used to have to walk through a graveyard to get to your worship service. Can you imagine that? That'd be a seeker-friendly service, wouldn't it? Just headstones in the front. Come on in, folks. We're going to worship today. I was amazed at how integral that that was. You can see that we professionalized it. We moved it off to the side, this death process. It becomes this, we don't talk about it. It's hushed tones and whispers, and, and, we, and, and, we, and it's distant because we're not comfortable with that idea. You drive down the highway, and you might see on a hill of cemetery, of, you know, very big one, or you might go by some old country church and see a few headstones in the yard. But by and large, it's a distant thing. It's not ever-present. We don't think about it. We don't walk through it on a regular basis. But this is the truth. We're going to die. So this is the second thing, that he died according to scriptures, that he was buried. And then what? He was raised to life on the third day according to scripture, that he was raised. So that's the, that's the second thing. I actually have this up here and I think about it. The gospel is died, raised, and then alive. And I want you to see that. So he died, he was buried, and then the gospel is that he was raised from the dead according to scripture. And then look at what verse five says, I love this, and that he appeared to Peter. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are living, although some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then he appeared to all the apostles, and then he appeared to me, last of all, as one who is abnormally born. Paul's like, I've had this really weird experience, church that Jesus showed up in my life. I didn't expect it. You remember who Paul was? He was a persecutor of the church. He was actually abusing the church. And God showed up in his life and appeared to him in such a way that he had to contend with who Jesus is. So you have 
The gospel is Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he was raised to new life according to scripture, and he began to show up in people's lives and make a difference and be like, I'm not dead, I'm alive. No one more surprised than the apostles. Read the text. No one more surprised than the apostles. Is it really you? Remember Thomas. If it's you, let me touch your hand and, and touch your side. If you're the real one who was on the cross and who was dead, let me know you. <clears throat> and far from rebuking, Jesus shows up again for Thomas. Says these words, stop doubting and believe. I wonder, do you know the gospel? Like I have to ask myself, do I know the gospel? I know it's the forgiveness of sins, but do I understand that it is for, for death and resurrection and then life, that God is in our lives actively? Do you know the gospel? Here's another question. Have you believed it? Have you understood it? Have you thought deeply about the implications of what we proclaim? This is why Paul writes, he says, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. This is why when we're there gathered together, we are hurting at a funeral, for sure. It is tragic and it is hard to go through. And yet, we know that God has overcome the grave. Sin and death, defeated in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the last question then. Is the gospel where you stand now? See, there's three thoughts that Paul shares here. It was proclaimed, you believed it, and you stand in it. Do you stand in this gospel are you one who says, yes, I'm going to, this is where I'm going to live my life in the light of resurrection power of who God says he is in the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Let me tell you, it's not always comfortable. See, one thing that seems to happen sometimes in church folk is that we like, we have this moment and we know God is real and we confess our sins, repent and believe. And then over time, we begin to kind of take back our, yeah, but there's this other thing I'm doing too that's pretty good right? We begin to kind of forget the gospel that we were dead in our sins but made alive in Christ. And we begin to kind of reclaim some of that work as our own. I'm a pretty good guy, aren't I? I'm a pretty good lady. I've made some, I made better decisions than that. And this all fails to meet the gospel test. No, it's what we believed, understood, and it's where we stand. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we'll move on because we're going to get to this. We have no hope. Here it is, verse 9. Let's see. For, the, for I am the least of all the apostles, Paul says, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. See, that's who he was. He was a God-hater, not a God-lover. He was against the Lord, not for the Lord. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect, Right? No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I working, but the grace of God that was working in me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. And so Paul's like, this is the only message we've ever had. This is the message of hope. And so that's the second thing, that the resurrection is our faith-filled message. It's our faith-filled message. Paul says, um, I'm the least to be a likely candidate for proclaiming this good news to you. I'm the worst sinner amongst you, and yet by the grace of God, it has effect. Look at what the word says there in verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace was not without effect. You know what that means? His grace wasn't nothing in my life. It wasn't zero. That his grace had an impact on my life. This gospel of Jesus changed me, is Paul's confession. 
No, he says, not only did it have no impact, it had the full impact. It was not me working hard, but the grace of God working in me, working hard. Whether then it was I or they, whatever we preached, this is what we all preached, and this is what you've all believed. The gospel is our faith-filled message. One of the things I think sometimes the church maybe wishes we had something else to say. You know, you look at the self-help section of any bookstore, and it's full, right? I was talking to a friend of mine who's reading, and they said, you know, oh, this is an interesting book. And I'm like, you know, self-help books only have to last about 90 days to be successful. That's the through line on self-help. Because if you can crank out a book and get enough hype about it, you can sell a bunch of them and then ask the question in three years, is that book still being read? Not always. I would even say not usually, right? What's the through line of hope that endures? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's our faith-filled message. It's what we believe and what we proclaim. Paul says there in verse 11, whether I, I or they preaching this word then, proclaiming, evangelizing, this is what you have believed. Filled with faith. Not only is grace not empty, it's faith-filled. It's full of faith in Jesus Christ. I love the way Mike started us off today because he said, you know, you've got to take a little time and not panic when something seems really wrong and let, let the word sit and, you know, let God make things right. That's great. That's a great word. That's the same idea. It's not empty. It's faith-filled, our lives. And we can wait. This is why we can stand around at a funeral and have hope and yet not be preachy. I hope we're not, you know, because we're all in that same boat. We need God to rescue us. See, the truth is our proclamation is what we believe. The things that we say out loud to our friends, our coworkers, our children, our parents are the things that we actually believe. The things that we say, we profess. So I wonder, what do you profess or proclaim as ultimately valuable in this life? What are you saying is the most important thing? Is like, hey, you got to read this latest awesome thing. I'm not against latest awesome things, but is this how you live? Look at this, look at that, look at this, look at that. Or is there some through line that you proclaim that's ultimately valuable? For the Apostle Paul, it was Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, buried, according to Scripture, raised to new life, and making himself known amongst his people, the God who shows up. This is the gospel. Verse 12 then. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say? Now Paul's going to get to the main issue here. It was some Corinthians. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? See, this is kind of still trendy, isn't it? This is kind of the still trendy thing. I followed Jesus, but yeah, that resurrection stuff, not so much. You know, uh, the, the, even the sin stuff, not so much. You know, we're all pretty good, and Jesus is a good guy, and we're like him, and we can be good. Um, yeah, I need the gospel, but and I'm not perfect, but boy, I'm better than this other person. And we begin to try to have some works-based salvation, and you don't call it that. You don't, no one would openly say, I'm, I'm works-based salvation, but, you know, that's the reality. It's like, uh, uh, I'm doing enough good stuff that, yeah, he's going to see it. He's like, hey, you did a good job, man. It's, I'm going to save you because you did good work. The truth is that... Uh, that's not the gospel. Paul says, the problem is that resurrection is absolutely required as part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If it is preached that Christ has not been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? And they might have said in that moment, well, that's okay, we, we don't think. But Paul says this, resurrection is our only hope, our only hope. Read on with me how Paul gets there. How can some of you say there's no resurrection? 
This is a tenant that they held then and many people hold today. Verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Right? So he makes a case. If there's no one raised from the dead, that means Jesus wasn't raised either. He means, like, the man Jesus wasn't raised. He's still in the grave somewhere. He's, he's, he's like everyone else that came before him. Did not even Christ been raised. Read verse 14. Here's another if. These are the ifs. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is what you believe. So Paul's like, everything I proclaim to you is worthless without resurrection. If Christ hasn't been raised, my gospel isn't a gospel at all. I actually said these words at my friend Max's funeral. If, if, my, if that's the truth, there's no resurrection from the dead, then the, the words I'm preaching today are useless words. And if you believe them, your faith is useless faith. That's what 14 says. No purpose. It's not a nice word. More than that, we are found then to be false witnesses about God. We're liars, is what he says. If Jesus Christ isn't raised from the dead, then we're lying about resurrection. We're lying about resurrection power. And I can't think of anything worse than lying about God. I can't think of anything worse than lying about God and who God is. More than that, we are found to be uh, false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he did raise Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead cannot be raised. So Paul's not saying he didn't raise him. He's like, if it's impossible, it's impossible. If you don't believe in resurrection of the body for anybody, you don't believe in resurrection of the body for Christ. That's a, that's a both-and situation. Look at 16. For if the dead are not ri- raised, then neither Christ has been raised either. If the dead are not raised, then neither is Jesus raised either. You ever look at the cemetery, you know, and you see those crosses? Just the cross headstones, as far as you can see. That's that hope. You know, people forever been sticking, take a stick or anything. You're in the middle of nowhere and you bury a friend and you put a stick with a cross. What are you saying there? There's a hope for resurrection for my friend who's gone. There's more to come. This isn't over. And it's always, often, I should say, done in the cross of Christ. It's a proclamation. But if, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then he's not raised either. And all those crosses are useless. And look what he says then in 17. And if Christ Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. That's not the same word as empty or worthless as I said before, but futile faith. It has no effect. And you are still in your sin. If Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, you and I have a huge sin problem because we're not forgiven. There's no resurrection, there's no forgiveness of sins, no forgiveness of sins. We are doomed to destruction. And all the things we've done wrong in our life will come back on us. Look at 18. Then all those who have fallen asleep are lost. All those headstones you've seen, all the graves you've seen, all the places we bury people all over the planet, there's no hope if there's no resurrection. The word means they're gone, obliterated, destroyed. And then 19. And this is actually the verse that I felt so compelled to share. If for only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all people. See, I've known some Christians who said this. Man, I don't know about the resurrection. Man, I don't know, but Jesus makes me better now, right? So I'm going to be better now. Even if, I, even if I die and I find that it's all not true, I had a better life because I believed it. And I was like, What? Paul says, no, no, we're mostly pitied if that's the case. 
And, and as a matter of fact, if in only this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied above all people. Like we're the worst of the worst. The word's like insufferable. If there's no resurrection, we're, the, we're to be, we're, we're the worst of the worst. I mean, pause to think about it for a moment. Think about it really with me just for a minute. What if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead? The story goes like that. There's this guy, he's talking big stuff about God, God's going to do. Then he gets locked up for some trumped up charges. He gets put on a cross, died, buried. That's it. And he's never raised. It creates huge problems. Huge problems. And we couldn't live a life that way that we really didn't believe he was raised from the dead. And in your consolation and consideration of a, a resurrection less gospel, Paul says these words. 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. After he lays out that whole case that, that the gospel is about sin forgiveness, the gospel is about resurrection, the gospel is about God showing up in your life right now where you are, he says, after all that stuff, if there's no resurrection, there's no hope, and he brings this place of utter despair. You go, oh my gosh, Paul, there's no hope, and he says this, but Christ has been raised from the dead. This is the gospel. Not that it's an add-on thought, maybe could be a thing or not a thing. No, it's necessary for the gospel. You ever seen those, the thing that happens right now with uh, Twitter and stuff where they clap? That's why I felt like this, like Paul's like, but Christ has been raised, right? That's what he's making a point after he brings us to this really bad path. And he's like, but Christ has been raised from the dead. And then he's going to now expound on that. How can some of you say there's no resurrection? 20, but Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. He's the first to be raised. What is the first fruit? It's like a first sacrifice. What is it? It's the first of many. It's the first thing. It's not the only thing. It's not the only resurrection. He's not saying, yeah, but Jesus was raised exclusively because of Jesus. No, he's the first fruits to be raised for all who've fallen asleep. What did Paul say? Those who've died in Christ have no hope if Jesus isn't raised. But listen to me, church. If Jesus Christ is raised, those who have gone before in the grave have hope to raise. This is why we can stand and proclaim good news at a funeral. I can't usually proclaim it like this because it feels out of order there, right? But it's true that this is our resurrection hope. So I walk down there. I read headstones. I was stunned, stunned to find at Max's funeral that the three headstones in a row, including Max's, were people that I knew intimately in my life, three dear friends. And you know what I realized? That I'll be the fourth. That the plot next to them is mine. And my hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ that I too will be raised. And my hope is that whenever people are driving by and they're too busy to stop, that they know that this resurrection power, that it's holy ground. Christ has been raised as first fruits for all those who've fallen asleep. Not like hopeless people, but people who will be raised. 21 is going to break it out. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For since in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. He's making the same case. Everyone gets a death curse in Adam. Everyone gets a resurrection power in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of Jesus. Here's the truth. Resurrection is found in Jesus Christ. It is found in him, in our relationship with him, in who he is, in who, his totality of his being. And we're going to talk about that. 
but each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, and then when he comes, all those who belong to him, everyone who belongs to Christ will be raised from the dead. Then the end will come when he stands over the kingdom when he hands over the kingdom of God, uh, to God the Father, and after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. I want you to see that. So he's going to destroy three things, dominion, authority, and power. That's what's happening right now. Um, I broke those out a little bit because I want to see like, what, what, they, what they meant. Uh, but um, let me see here. Yeah, dominion was like first claims. Like I have the right to this. It's the, the prioritization claim. So the first claims are dominion. And then the second is authority or rights. Like I have a, 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 a the, the privilege to do things. It means privilege. And then power is dunamis. It's ability. It's dynamite, right? You can make things happen. He's like, I'm going to destroy the misperceptions about first claims, about rights, and about power. And after I've done those things, then the, the end will come. By the way, I'm not sure if you're a movie fan or not, but I love this kind of little connection here. It says, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all made alive. And the word for, for um, I'm going to find it right quick here. The word for death in, uh, in the Greek is thanatos. Thanatos. Uh, uh, just as thanatos, in, in death came through a man, so resurrection comes uh, by a man. Resurrection from the dead. I don't know if you've seen that, but it reminds me of um, that, uh, what is it, uh, Avengers, right? Where uh, Thanos, you know, like the worst bad guy ever. Like, how are they going to beat him? You know, if you've seen the movies, maybe you haven't. But what a crazy thing, right? And uh, he has this line, actually, Thanos, and I think about it. He has this line where he says, uh, I am inevitable, right? Like, there's this thing, I am inevitable. Have you seen it? Like, they can't stop it. Like, no matter which way we go, we can't stop it. We can't, there's no way we can get around it. And that's what death looks like. Death is inevitable in Adam. This real death, loss of life, it means to wither away or decay. It means to wilt. It's inevitable. But in Christ, all will be called to life, quickened, made vital again. In the end, Christ will have annulled in the dominion of these first claims and rights and power. He will reclaim it all. And this is the gospel. You think about that for a minute with me, church. The, the, the proclamation of the gospel began at the resurrection of Christ, but it's culminated in the fulfillment of the resurrection of all God's people. That's whenever really, like just as much as the apostles were stunned when they saw Jesus raised, it will be stunning whenever God raises all his people. So we have this inevitability of death, destruction of dominion, authority, and power. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. 26, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And I want to just stop there for a hot minute and say this, that resurrection is the destroyer of death. It's the destroyer of death. I told you that quote from that movie, um, uh, I am inevitable. Yes, but this is the gospel hope. You are inevitable death, but you think you have the power of death, but you think no more is to be said, but I, I can't help but ex be ecstatic and excited when I realize that in the moment of Christ's death on the cross, in the moment of his burial and resurrection, in the moment of his apostles' despondency, that he's not who we thought he was. The enemy must have thought, yes, I got him. I've won. You know, this week we had uh, homecoming at Highland High School. And, uh, and uh, it, Wednesday, we had to see the poll. And by the way, praise God for all our students came out to see the poll. It was awesome. It was great, right? Middle school and high school students came out. I don't know if the grade school prayed this year or not, but middle school and high school prayed. It was awesome. But it was also, 
your favorite holiday. You dress up your favorite holiday for homecoming week. And I couldn't, I, I was like, I couldn't help want to dress up. You know, why not? It's out there. And, but I want to dress up for Easter, right? Because just like death came in a person, life came in a person, and, and it's literally like, in my favorite holiday, there's this moment where death has won. And then God speaks. There's a moment where we've tamped down the soil and we've planted the flowers. We've grieved and mourned and we walked away despondent. And the ground begins to shake. Huh. There's a moment where God says to his people, wake up and come to me. Come to me. The last enemy, the last hater, to be abolished or annulled or called worthless is death itself. The inevitable is worthless. It doesn't matter. Thus proving that God, the word said, thus proving that God is all in all. He will put everything under his feet in 27. And now when it says everything's been put under his feet, it is clear that it does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he was done with this, when the son, of, the son himself will be made subject to him and put everything under him, then God will be all in all. God is everything. The power of God is everything. The gospel of Jesus Christ is everything. The forgiveness of sins is everything. And our resurrection is everything. God is made known through his resurrection. So then Paul says this. 29. Now if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized from the dead? What? Let me read it again in case you're uh, checked out right now. Now, if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? And I started thinking, who's baptized for the dead? Like, we have baptism for, as an outward sign of the forgiveness of our sins and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, baptism, we're going to have it coming up. If you've been thinking about praying about it, I encourage you to consider joining us in baptism. But baptism has a very symbolic, you're laid back in death and you're raised to new life. But it's a, it's a symbolism of what's already happened in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul says here, why are people, if there's no resurrection, why are people baptized for the dead? And I'm like, Paul, who's baptized for the dead? I don't understand this. I don't know. I don't know why that's there. There's a couple of thoughts. It could have been a cultural practice. This is how I read it. People have hope for their ancestors who've gone before them. And, and some of them people were probably being baptized in the name of someone else to, to help them be raised. That, that was their hope. I don't think Paul is saying this is something the church ought to do necessarily. He's just asking a question of the church in Corinth. If there's no hope for resurrection, then why are people concerned about their grandparents, great-grandparents, or their parents, or people who've gone before them? If there's no hope for resurrection, why are people concerned for the children they've lost, or the brothers and sisters they've lost? Why is there worry about it at all if there's a resurrection? He's asking a kind of philosophical question. Why would you be concerned for the condition of spiritually of people who have gone before you if there's no resurrection from the dead? Here's something else he says. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people, oh, I read that in verse 30. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day for the gospel. If I fought with wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, because tomorrow we die. This is what Paul, and I want you to see this last point here. Resurrection is the reason we can risk life. Resurrection is the reason we can risk life. 
Paul says, I'm putting my life on the line for the gospel. I'm doing uncomfortable things. I'm saying uncomfortable things. I'm believing things that you might not all agree with. Why? Because I believe in resurrection. It drives me. It compels me. He says, I fought wild beasts over this. Um, I endanger myself every hour, and I mean it sincerely. I've done these things because I do believe. And he says this, if there's no resurrection, hey, man, let's party, right? Let's just get on with it. Can I say something to you this morning? That second part of that sentence is where our culture lives. Let's just party, dude, because nothing matters. I said this a few weeks ago, and I'm kind of leaning into it a little bit. You know, I don't overstate it, but you know, you see so much of the despondency that's happening. You see so much of the brokenness coming out of us as humans, the way we're behaving toward one another. It's because we don't think that anything matters anymore. Why would it? There's nothing to look forward to. There's no life after death. And so if that's, if that's a, the truth that people believe, then what's to stop people from doing crazy, unforgivable things? Why, why should it matter? Let us eat and drink, because tomorrow we die. Just get as much as you can. In the early 2000s, it was like YOLO. Remember that whole thing? You only live once, man. Just do it, you know? Don't think about it. But there's an antithetical. If resurrection is real, then there's a reason we should risk this life for something greater. There's a greater call. 33, do not be misled. Bad company corrects, corrupts good character. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. The Bill Dempsey translation of this reads like this. I wrote it down. I hope I did. Crappy homies corrupt Christ-like ethics. That's how I read that. Right? So your bros giving you really bad advice because they think you, you only live once, man. Just do it. Break down Christ-like ethical decisions. Why? Because the idea is this. If there is resurrection or life, there's something more worth living for than what you're living for right now. Paul says he risks his life every day for this. Here's the last point. Resurrection is a wake-up call for sin. Don't be misled, Paul says here. Okay, look out of context and you read it. You're like, how do you change the gears there? Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you should and stop sinning. It's a sin problem. If you don't believe in resurrection, what's to stop you? Because some of you are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame, and Paul says, no, resurrection is a wake-up call to sin. The reality is that there is more to life than what we know. Um, Mike asked me earlier today when we were getting started, he said, uh, what's the topic for uh, coffee conversation this week, afterlife. That's the topic. I'm going to be preachy like this about it, but I want to think about it. What are, the, what are the things that remind us that there's more to life than this? What are the problems with that? So maybe you consider you want to come out and have that conversation with us. I would love for you to join us Thursday night. We're going to talk that through practically. Does it matter if we believe there's more to life than this? Or is this life all there is? So what are you betting on for eternity? What do you think is going to make it right? Here's another question. What are you betting on for the forgiveness of your sins? Or what are you basing your life around? I mean, do cemeteries freak you out because that's all there is? Or do they give you hope because there's more to come? Pray with me if you would. Father, I thank you so much for this time we spent in your word and the power of the reality of Paul's proclamation of your gospel of resurrection. 
I pray, Lord, and I said it earlier, I confess as much that the times that we've stepped back from these things because we thought, well, you know, there's these other more pressing issues that we would not miss the, the power of your gospel and how this resurrection power is rooted in your very creation, that the things we know about you as creator become manifest in our recreation, our, our resurrection from the dead. I pray, Father, that we would apply this gospel to our lives. I pray for those, I just I pray for the upcoming thing this week. There's so many things going on, Father, but I pray you're glorified as we sit back and just worship you and pray to you and trust in you. May you be made known among the nations. I pray last of all, Lord, that uh, we be resurrection people, that we would look uh, not without hope, but with hope that we would be the voice in the room of reason saying there's more to life than this. There's more to life than this. Help us to be those people, Father. We love you so much and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.